Hi, Creative. It's Lauren here, and I wanted to ask you a quick favor. If you like the show and it has helped you, please remember to rate, review, and follow it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Also, consider sharing the show on your Instagram stories or Twitter. Tag the guest at Unleash Your Inner Creative and at Lauren LaGrasso, and I will repost to share my gratitude. Thank you so much for listening and supporting the show. And now, let's get to the creative chat. Hello, and welcome to Unleash Your Inner Creative with Lauren LaGrasso. I'm Lauren LaGrasso. I'm an award-winning podcast host and producer, singer-songwriter, public speaker, actor, and creative coach, and this show is meant to give you tools to take fear out of the driver's seat of your life and love yourself enough to pursue whatever it is that's on your heart. On the show, we explore the creative process and journey, mental health, self-development, and spirituality. So this week is a little different. Right now, I'm out of town working on my new single and giving some love to my other creative baby, music. So it's a short break, but I didn't want to leave you without a great show. And I thought it would be a perfect time to revisit an amazing episode of Unleash. It's one of my favorites, and it's on a topic that was really timely when it came out a year ago during quarantine, and recently happens to be an episode I found myself passing along to other people and even re-listening to a lot myself. So if you haven't listened to this one yet, or maybe you need a refresher on all the advice that this guest gave, because honestly, it was action-packed, I really think you'll get so much out of listening to it for the first time or for a second time. Today, you're going to hear an episode with Susan Robertson. She is a Harvard lecturer, innovation thought leader, consultant to world-leading companies, and a performing artist. She's best known for being an instructor on innovation and applied creativity at Harvard's professional development program and for working with and teaching some of the world's largest brands about innovation, including PepsiCo, Clorox, and Bank of America. I wanted to share this episode again because Susan gives tangible advice on how to overcome negativity bias. Simply put, negativity bias is our tendency to say no to a creative idea before really thinking through whether or not it could work. It happens because as young kids, we learn there's a consequence to being wrong. Think of all the times you're ready to believe critics over your own creative intuition. We've all been there. It's totally natural, but being aware of this instinct can have a huge effect on your creativity as an individual, how you serve as a leader, and even how you work creatively in groups. Susan will give you tips to effectively overcome skepticism over new ideas in yourself and others. And what's more, she'll teach you how to take that good idea and expand upon it. It's a powerful conversation, and I can't wait for you to hear it again. Now here it is, my interview with Susan Robertson. Okay, I want to go back to the beginning with little Susan growing up in Indiana, as I just found out. When you were young, what did you want to be when you grew up? And how is that dream, that childhood dream, involved in what you do now? Well, you know, it's funny that you asked that particular question because I was a kid who actually had no idea what I I wanted to be when I grew (laughs) up. And my brother knew from about the time he could talk that he wanted to be a doctor. And so somehow in my head, I got, because my brother was older than I was, I got this idea that, oh, that probably means I need to be a doctor too, because that's what it means to be a grown up, which is very strange. And so for most of my life, I had that, I think, subconsciously planted in my head. And when I went to college, I went into a pre-med track and I discovered pretty quickly that that was not the right thing. (laughs) I sort of wandered around in college and I went to Indiana University and they actually had a major called create your own major. And I told my parents, I'm going to create my own major. And my parents said, no, you're not. So so I ended up majoring in English because it was a, you know, sort of a broad based liberal arts degree. And then, you know, did a variety of things before I finally kind of landed on what do I want to be when I grew up, which I figured out when I was about 40. (laughs) Well, that's super encouraging because I think so many people have, they put so much pressure on themselves to find a quote unquote purpose. And I'm always talking about how I think purpose isn't attached to like, I do this, I am this. It's more about an overarching life thesis of how you want to serve. And then everything else can feed into that. If you had a thesis for your life, like your purpose on earth is to blank, what would you say it is and why? It is to help people discover their own ability to think more creatively, 
And why? Because it gives me joy to see the light go on in people's eyes when they realize they can do things differently and think about things differently and change their life in positive ways. It really brings meaning to my life. Yeah. And you're clearly amazing at it. I know before you got into this particular field, though, you worked for a lot of years in corporate. Well, I mean, you worked at like Hasbro, right? You worked at a bunch of different big businesses. Yes. And I can only imagine all the things you must have seen, but I'm assuming that some of what sparked your passion for this line of work was what you went through while you were working for those companies. Was it born out of that experience in the corporate world? How did you become a negativity bias expert? What did the path look like? Well, it was, you know, it, as you say, it was all shaped by all my experiences, I think. And when I was working in big corporations, I was in typically in marketing roles, but specifically, I had found myself over and over again in new product development roles. Now, not from an R&D standpoint, but I was the marketing person on the new product development team. So I was the one doing the consumer research and the marketing research and helping come up with new ideas for new products. And I discovered that I really loved that kind of work when you're still in the very ambiguous phase and you're trying to figure out what people need and how to fulfill that need. But in big corporations, there is always a lot of under the surface stuff going on that mm -hmm. washes creative thinking. And it's no, it's no one's intention. It's all unintended consequences of other things. But I think for me, at least subconsciously, I felt kind of stifled. I don't think I kind of realized that I felt stifled, but I did realize I felt not particularly satisfied in my job. But I did those jobs for a long time, you know, always trying to work on new product development. Then I finally figured out after many uh, jobs doing similar things in many different companies that I really needed to focus on all that front end work where it is all more ambiguous. And I ended up leaving a big corporation and going to work for a very small consulting company whose clients were those big companies. And I was specifically working on generating ideas, brainstorming, working with consumers, all the front end part of the innovation work. And did that for many, many years before I went out on my own. So I'm not actually, I'm not sure I answered your question. That was a sort of a wandering answer. No, you, you did. I guess the thing I was wondering was like, were you in a lot of those meetings where you felt like you couldn't express yourself? And that, do you think that was like the spark for what you ended up doing? That was certainly a piece of it. I right. mean, in, in big companies, you have to be not only good at your job, but you have to also be good at navigating all the political waters. And there, there's a lot of, in the political arena about, you know, what you can say, what you can't say, who can you say it to, and when can you say it? And frankly, I sucked at all that part. I was good at the job part, but I wasn't very good at the political part. So there were, yeah, many times when I felt like I couldn't or shouldn't say what I wanted to say. And my, part of my problem was I said it often anyway. So, <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that's changing at all in these big companies that they're allowing people to just be people instead of trying to think of like 15 different ways one sentence could be interpreted? Or is it still pretty stagnant? I think in some senses or some situations it's changed. I think, uh, I guess, companies that are a bit more enlightened are probably much more uh, comfortable and willing to accept that people need to be human. Uh -huh. But I still think it's pretty rampant. I, I still see it in my clients. And sometimes my clients say to me, oh, gosh, Susan, will you hire me? Can I come work for you? Because this big company thing is driving me crazy. <laughs> I'm not interested in having employees, but... <laughs> Yeah, I think it's I think it's sadly still there. And I think to some degree it's just the nature of size. So anytime you get, you know, a few humans together and then you start to get more and more and more of them, you have to start worrying more and more about group dynamics. Right. I'm not sure if you felt like this at all, but I think a lot of people listening, you know, are working at a job that could be interpreted as a golden handcuff situation. They have good money, good pay, maybe it's a prestigious company but they have a longing in their heart to either do something like what you did, like go into consulting or start their own business or follow a creative passion, mm -hmm. but they're afraid to. Yes. If somebody is currently in golden handcuffs, 
how would you advise them on how to weigh their options of whether they should stay in that situation or go do something different? That's a very interesting question. And we haven't talked much about this, but part of the background I bring into some of my work is a little bit of what's the neuroscience of what's going in on our brains around creative thinking and around ideas. And we have a, a cognitive bias and a cognitive bias is a complicated term, but think of it as a subconscious mental shortcut. So we have these mental traps that we fall into. We all have the same traps. And one of those traps is called the status quo bias. And the status quo bias makes us assume that the current situation is less risky than any other situation. So that's one of the reasons why we might feel like we're in golden handcuffs, not simply because of the benefits that come along with the job, but also because of the status quo bias that makes us assume this is less risky than anything else. So if you really do have that kind of itch in your head about, you know, I'm not feeling fulfilled or satisfied, but the, the status quo bias is probably giving you this fear of mm -hmm. changing. First of all, just being conscious that that status quo bias is working on you subconsciously helps. That alone helps. But then you have to do a real hard assessment of what you do like about your current situation and probably money and some security is part of that and what you don't like about your current situation. And then another assessment of what you might like in a new situation. And again, the status quo bias will tend to make you underestimate the benefits of the change situation. So you have to really give yourself some space and some time and some openness to the parts of your life that are other than money and security that are meaningful to you. So if doing work that's more meaningful is important, you have to weigh that appropriately in this assessment. It is very difficult to do because of that status quo bias. So again, just being aware of that, I think helps a lot. And then doing the hard assessment and using perhaps different criteria for the decision than the standard criteria, which is, you know, money is typically a criteria for a decision like that. But you might need to come up with some other criteria about what's really important to you. Oh, that's amazing advice. And I've never heard anybody talk about that. So thank you. So let's say somebody did the list you suggested. They found that the criteria of what actually will make them happy is outside of their current situation. They've decided they want to go for it. Mm -hmm. What are some tips for somebody who's going out and starting a new venture after years of working a full-time job? Like what, for instance, when you did that, like what did you practically get into place? Well, I practically made sure I had my finances in order that I could go for a while potentially without some income. I also, I happened to be fortunate that I had a, a previous boss who had started her own venture and she needed part-time help. So she needed sort of half-time help. Mm. So I signed on with her for half-time, which was perfect because it gave me a little bit of income, a little bit of security enough to you know, pay the bills, but also gave me the, the other half of my time to create what I wanted to create. So those were the things I got in place, I, I think primarily. Yeah. And those are great things to have in mind for when you are going out in your own ventures, like having at least a few months of income to support you. And I think having that part-time work, it's like a lot of people say you have to just throw yourself into whatever you're doing. Obviously that's ideal if you have a benefactor or you're independently wealthy, but, yeah. uh, but if not, and if you're a planner and a hardworking Midwestern girl, like you are, you got to have that little bit of stability. I think it, it just makes all the difference mentally. Right. Okay. So then tell me how you started doing what you're doing now. And when you first, were you first speaking or were you going into companies and coaching? Like, how did it look when you first started the company? Well, I, I have to back up a little bit to make it make sense. So when I left big corporations, as I said, I was in marketing roles in big corporations. And I first went to a consulting company and 
the business of that consulting company was helping those sorts of big companies come up with new product ideas. So we did a lot of consumer research to aid in coming up with the right new product ideas. And part of the way that particular company did it was we found consumers who had a, a natural bent toward creative thinking. And then we further trained their creative thinking and gave them some very specific tools and techniques. So they were better able to help us brainstorm along with the clients. So we were doing brainstorming with the consumers and the clients together as one team, which was fairly unusual at the time. I think more companies are doing that now, but when we were doing it 20 years ago, it was quite unique. And so I learned how to train creative thinking doing that work. So that's how I got really interested in helping people tap into their own creative abilities. And then I did that work for, gosh, 15 years. And then I went out on my own because I got much more interested in the, the speaking and the corporate culture parts of how do I help companies in general be more innovative, not just how do I deliver one new product idea, but how do I help them be more creative in their approaches to everything all the time. So that was the impetus for me to, to leave the consulting company and go out on my own so that I could do more of the parts of the work that I like, which was helping individuals think more creatively. And that tends to be the speaking and helping companies become more creative in general. And that tends to be the consulting work. I love that. And a big part of why I started this podcast was because I do think repressed creativity is the cause of a lot of the world's suffering. And I also know that in the next 50 years, I heard a statistic that 80% of all jobs are going to require creativity. So it's not just like a fluffy, fun thing that kids right. can do when they're little. It's actually a really tangible, necessary life skill in order to be financially viable in the future. That's very yeah. true. Yeah. Yeah. And, but yet a lot of people say that I'm not creative. And wow. I just think that's like when I meet someone who says they're not creative, I'm like, you're a liar. <laughs> like, right. And I'm going to prove it. Well, but, they're, well not what, what, liar. they're not a liar because they believe it, right? Yeah, right, right. You're not a liar. <laughs> but but you don't you haven't opened yourself up to the true nature of who you are because it's your birthright as a human being. Right. So when you encounter somebody who says I'm not creative, how do you approach it and how do you show them that they have the ability to open up their brain in this way? Uh, there are a few ways. Uh, one of the ways that I do, if I'm actually working with somebody one-on-one, -on -one, there's an assessment. It happens to be called the Curtin, that's K-I-R-T-O-N, Curtin Adapter Innovator Scale. And the underlying concept of that particular assessment is all humans are creative. The only thing that differs is how we express it. So in other words, mm. what does it look like? And what we have defined in our society, and I think in most cultures, is we have defined people who are creative as one specific type of creative thinker. And that's the type that's called an innovator in that particular assessment. But there's another type, and really it's actually, it's a, it's a continuum. So a, a high innovator is at one end of the continuum. And at the other end of the continuum is someone called a high adapter. And a high adapter is not the sort of flamboyant kind of uh, person that we tend to think of when we think of a creative person, <laughs> but they solve problems in a different way. And in fact, their real hallmark of their creativity is to make things work. So their creativity looks much more practical. And what they're really genius at is taking perhaps a crazy undoable idea that might have come from the, the crazy innovator. And they are genius at figuring out how to make that practical and make it work and make it implementable and in a, in a business setting, make it profitable. Wow. So I do talk to people about that. Like you are creative because all humans are creative. It just might look different. And then secondly, we know that all humans are creative. You said it's our birthright, and in fact, it is. There was a study done, and I unfortunately am not going to be able to pull up the specifics of the study out of my memory, but there was a study done where they, they took a group of kindergartners, so five-year-olds, and they gave them some tests of creative thinking, and 95% of the kindergartners scored in what would be called highly creative. So 95%, virtually all of them scored wow. highly creative. And then they tested the very same group of children five years later 
and the results had reversed and only 5% of them scored as highly creative. So what that shows us, and remember it was the same kids, same people. What that shows us is that we kind of unlearn our creativity. And it happens because as we grow up and have more life experience and go to school, we start realizing that being wrong is a thing. And we start to realize that there are consequences to being wrong. When we're really young, we don't even sort of really know being wrong is a thing. (laughs) But we start to learn that as we go to school. um, And we realize there are consequences to being wrong. And thus we start to really try to avoid being wrong. And if you are never willing to be wrong, you're never going to consider a creative idea. And that just gets more and more ingrained in us the longer we stay in school and we go to work uh, in a, you know, potentially in a company where the consequences to being wrong are, are sometimes obvious. So we, we squash our own creativity in an effort to never be wrong. And is this where the negativity bias comes in? Well, that's, no, it's slightly different, although it may be somewhat related. Do you want me to talk about the negativity bias a little bit? Yeah, I, well, I'd love to, to talk about how do we as individuals get over our fear of being wrong? So whatever that would be in yeah. your world and your bag of tricks, I'd love to talk about that. And then I'd love to go into negativity bias and the five steps to overcome it. Yeah. So for me, the, uh, getting over the fear of being wrong is something you just have to Again, be, once you become aware that that fear of being wrong is probably what's inhibiting you a little bit, that alone helps. So just being aware helps a lot. But also some of the tricks I use to help people around the negativity bias will also help. So let's talk about that because they will, they will also apply here. Awesome. The negativity bias is another one of those, another one of those mental traps that I talked about earlier, like the status quo bias. And again, when I say bias, people sometimes think I'm talking about an individual bias or an individual preference. And so sometimes people say, well, you might have that bias, but I don't. But that's not what these particular biases are about. These biases that I'm talking about are are cognitive biases. They're a neuroscience phenomenon that we know for sure that all humans have. So all humans have that status quo bias that I talked about, and all humans have the negativity bias that I'm about to talk about. We don't like to admit that we have it, but we all do. So the negativity bias in general is the the concept that negative experiences have a more profound impact on our thoughts, feelings, and behaviors than positive experiences do. It seems completely counterintuitive, but it's been proven definitively that that's true. So we are more motivated to avoid negative experiences then we are motivated to seek out positive experiences. So that's the definition of the negativity bias. And again, remember that it's subconscious. We're not aware this is going on in your brain. It's all under the surface. So to illustrate this a little bit, imagine this situation. If you believed somebody had stolen $20 from you, think about how angry you might be. And then conversely, think about if you randomly found $20 in the street, how happy might you be? And what the negativity bias tells us is that we are much angrier about losing or having the $20 stolen than we are happy about randomly finding $20. Even though the rational value of the money is exactly the same, the negative experience has a more profound impact on us than the positive one. So that's the definition of the negativity bias. And the way that plays out in terms of creative thinking is that we tend to focus on the potential danger in any idea because we're trying to avoid the negative. And our brains interpret any uncertainty as negative or danger. So any idea has some uncertainty in it. If it's a new idea, not everything about it is completely clear. So our brains are laser focused and lightning fast on identifying the potential negatives. And we're much less focused on identifying the potential positives. And the way we hear that, or the way that we know it's happening to us is by 
we, if we can hear ourselves saying the words, yes, but. When someone says an idea, or even sometimes when we come up with an idea ourselves, we tend to respond with yes, but. And what, become, what comes behind the but are all the potential problems in the idea. So the, the trick to helping ourselves get around this is a sort of a three-step system. And I'm going to talk about the three-step system. But the context is you have to first train yourself to start listening to the yes, but. Even if you're not saying it out loud, if you're just thinking it in your head, that's the trigger for you to know, oh, I need to, I need to turn off my negativity bias, the subconscious thing, and I need to turn on a conscious process, this system that I'm going to teach you. And I call this system GPS thinking, and GPS stands for great problem solving. So to do this, what you do when you hear yourself say yes, but is you, you turn off the yes, but, and you say first, what's G potentially great? about this idea, knowing it's not perfect, it's not finished, it's got some rough edges, and your brain will be trying to take you to the rough edges, but you have to hold your brain off for a minute and first list what's potentially good in the idea, assuming we can later solve for the problems in it. And you want to make a long list of diverse things that are potentially good. So that's step one, G, great. Once you've done that, come up with a list of potentially great things about this idea. You can move to the P problem part, which is where your brain has been trying to take you the whole time anyway. But there's one critical difference about the way you say the problem. So typically we make the problem a statement like it costs too much or it will take too long. What you need to do instead is flip that into a how to question. So instead of saying it's too expensive, you say, how can I make it more affordable? Or instead of saying it will take too long, instead you say, how can I do it in the time I have? And that one trick of flipping the statement into a question acts like flipping a switch in your brain. It flips off rejection and it flips on problem solving and your brain will take off on problem solving. And that is the third step S solution you start to generate solutions for those problems you just came up with by changing that original idea. And you can change it in any way you want as long you, as you keep something about it from the G great list. So I think it probably helps if I repeat those three steps really. Yeah, quickly. definitely. Okay. So, uh, so again, the trigger is you say yes, but that you have to start training yourself to trigger the GPS thinking when you hear yourself or, or, you, or you think, yes, but. So G, great. List everything about the idea that could be good after we solve for the problems in the idea. P, problem, but articulated in the form of a how-to question. And S, solution, solve for that problem by changing the original idea but keeping something about it that was great. So that's the GPS system. It's really, I call it a neuroscience brain hack. It's dramatically powerful in changing your, your way of responding to ideas. And as a result, it opens your thinking. And in my case, in particular, when I, when I sort of stumbled on this myself, it, it dramatically changed my life. I didn't used to think I was a creative thinker either. Um, wow. And this GPS system, it sounds very simple. It's not complicated to understand. It's simple to understand. It is, I will tell you, hard to do because you have to learn to battle a subconscious natural instinct of the negativity bias, you know, that escaping from fear. So it is something you have to practice a lot. And the bad news is you can never erase the negativity bias because it's instinctive. But if you can practice this GPS thinking consciously, regularly, you know, every time an opportunity comes up, force yourself to do it, it can be truly life-changing. It was for me. Well, I love it too, because you can start with small things, you know, it could be 
Oh, I mean, I don't know. I can't think of anything right now because life is so weird. But, <laughs> but uh, I was like, I was going to say something about going to the store, but I'm like, well, you can't yeah. go to the store. Right. But you could start with small things that you maybe don't want to do in your right. brain, but like, you know, it would be good for you. And then increase exactly. it to like big life changing moments. Right. And I love it because that also circles back to the golden handcuffs thing. Like if you use this GPS method, I think if you are in a situation that actually is golden handcuffs or not golden, like really rusty, creepy handcuffs. <laughs> you could use this GPS method to unchain yourself because I think a lot of times it is that what you said before, what was it? The, uh, which bias was it? The, the one negativity you... bias or the, the other one was the status quo bias. Yeah. It's the status quo bias and the negativity bias, yeah. maybe combining forces to be yes. evil and like take over your mind. So yes, they are very interlinked. Yeah, they're definitely soulmates, and uh, I don't want to see them together. Yes. So I appreciate that you've given us a tool to dismantle their union. What if somebody is working at a company, and it's a great creative job, they love the job, but the leadership is full of yes buts, and it never seems to change into yes and. Mm -hmm. Is there any way for that employee who is not in a leadership position to salvage the the company, like their position in the company, if that yes, but is totally hampering their creativity. Yes. And, and keep in mind that because the yes, but, or the negativity bias is so instinctive in all of us, it exists everywhere and it exists in big companies, it exists in small companies, but sometimes we, it's really easy to spot in a bigger company. But one of the things that I work with people sometimes on doing is doing stealth GPS thinking. <laughs> and if you can start doing it yourself and saying those things yourself, you will start to influence the other people around you. Now, it's not going to be immediate or overnight. They're not going to catch on immediately. But if you just start saying, hey, what's potentially interesting about that idea? Anytime somebody says an idea in a meeting, other people will be able to identify things that are potentially good about an idea. And if they start to go to the yes, but you can just subtly, again, not overtly telling them, stop doing that. You can say, well, let's, let's first, before we go there, let's spend a few more minutes on what's potentially interesting. Then we'll work on solving for the problem. So you don't even have to teach people you you're doing it. You can just start doing it and you will begin to influence the people around you and they will, subtly and maybe subconsciously notice that things are changing and most people really appreciate it. None of us like a yes, but environment. Nobody thinks it's fun. Um, but, but just start doing it. Right. That's a great tip. It's kind of like when you start going to therapy, suddenly you realize the people around you are changing and it's because you're changing and like you thought you had problems with them, but really a lot of your problems were with yourself. <laughs> Right. And the other thing that happens when you start when you start using this sort of GPS thinking as a practice and it becomes habitual for you, it does change you. And I think it changes how people respond to you. And all of that will be for the good for you. You'll you'll mm -hmm. feel better, you'll be more able to I think let some things roll off your back when other people have the yes but response because you know it's instinctive and they're not being a jerk, they're just human. It's a human response. And it will begin to change you and probably make you more open to eventually doing the things you want to do if you later want to make bigger changes. Right. You've talked about both innovation and creativity. I've always kind of thought, what's the real difference between those two words? I don't know. Sometimes I think people say innovation, not you, but like some, some people that I've worked with in the past have said innovation. And I feel like they said it just because they wanted to sound smart or cool. Yeah. Like what, what is the difference between innovation and creativity? And specifically, what is innovation? Yep. So thank you for asking. That's a good question. Most people don't even think to ask. They are not the same thing, but obviously they are highly linked. So Creative thinking is literally the thinking process to come up with a new idea. Innovation is a broader set of processes and tools and steps to bring that idea into the world. 
So creative thinking is the fuel for innovation. You can't have innovation without the creative thinking, but creative thinking is not the sum total of innovation. So the easiest way to think about it is creative thinking is the thought process and innovation is the bringing it into the world process. So in a business environment, for example, innovation is commercializing the idea. If you were in, let's say you're in an education environment, you're a teacher. So the innovation process in education would be getting that idea into the hands of the teachers and the teachers implementing it into the classroom, all the processes to make it live. Mm. So creative thinking is the underlying foundation. And then innovation is everything that's encompassed in making it real. I love that. Okay. That makes total sense. And I never knew that. I I mean, I truly thought people were saying innovation. Like I've heard a lot of people in, in corporate America say it like innovation, technology, being the biggest and the best. And I think that they don't have that foundation of what it really is underneath yeah. it. So it helps to know the true meaning of the word. You also say that innovation is no longer optional. I'm assuming that it's due to some of the things that we spoke about earlier about how creativity is going to become necessary. But why is it no longer optional? Because the world is changing so rapidly. And if we don't adapt to those changes and change our processes and our thinking and our products and our services, our organizations will die. If you look at the list of who was in the Fortune 500 100 years ago and who's in the Fortune 500 now, I think only like two or three of the same companies. So, and in addition, we all know stories of companies that were at one time really, really innovative and now no longer exist. Kodak, for example, at one time mm-hmm. was hugely innovative, then bankrupt because they, they didn't adapt and change when the world changed. And that is, again, all related to that negativity bias, the status quo bias, a bunch of other biases like the confirmation bias. But all of those serve to sort of blind us to what we're doing that has made us successful may not continue to make us successful in the future. And if we don't change, somebody else is going to come in with a newer, better, more useful idea and they'll change the market. And then we're kind of stuck holding the bag with all the cost of our organization and and a product that, that no longer is relevant. Right. And speaking of which, I feel like so many companies are having companies and individuals alike are having to face that right now with how to stay financially viable when the world dramatically changed within two months. Usually we at least have like a couple years to kind of figure things out, but the world changed so quickly. And I've seen some people doing amazing things. I saw a hairdresser who has been giving virtual lessons on how to cut your hair, like step-by-step, making, uh, at home color kits. I mean, there's some amazing things that people are doing and thinking so much outside of the box, but like, what do you think is going to differentiate people who make it through this crisis business wise and, and those who don't? Well, to me, it is, it is ultimately going to lie with not only doing the creative thinking, but also enabling people to then implement. So in every organization I've ever worked in, there were always actually lots of ideas because humans are ultimately creative. Even, even all those biases I talked about that, that hold back our creativity, we ultimately were problem solvers. But the nature of big organizations is to, again, unintended to squash ideas and focus too much on the difficulties or the obstacles or the problems in those ideas. And Eventually, if people keep getting yes butted over and over and over again, they're just going to stop coming up with new ideas and they're just going to continue to do every day what we did yesterday because that's easy and nobody's telling them you can't do that. In fact, they're saying you should do that. So it's going to be not only helping people come up with creative ideas, but then also creating an environment where you empower people to solve for the problems in those ideas, to get around the obstacles, to figure out how to do it and giving them some freedom and authority to do that. This is maybe just my personal opinion, but I think too much authority for too many decisions is pushed too high up in organizations to people that don't have their feet on the ground in terms of understanding the real situation. And if we can 
push some more decision-making authority back down to the people who, who really know the details, I think we'll be better off. And there's a lot of fear around that from people at senior levels for reasons I understand, because leaders tend to think that, you know, the buck stops here and I'm the one who's responsible for making sure we don't make a huge mistake financially. So I'm the one who has to say yes or no. But if you give people the criteria and give them an understanding of how to make those decisions, they will apply those criteria themselves. If the idea doesn't yet meet the criteria, they'll continue to work to solve it till it does, or they'll find another idea that does. So if you can empower people to make decisions, improve ideas, come forward with recommendations and listen to their recommendations, I think those are the companies that are going to succeed. And I mean, that's how they would have succeeded in the past, but it's even more imperative now. I feel like everything's just getting, you know, like things are changing, but it was going to happen anyway, many of these things. It's just Mm -hmm. getting done at lightning speed now. Right. How can we as individuals stay creative during this time when so much of life is shut down or on hold? You know, there are a few sort of foundational principles in creative thinking that if you can keep in mind will really help. And one of them is this concept that there are sort of two modes of thinking within creative thinking, and they're both equally important, but they're different. One of those modes is called divergent thinking, and the other mode is called convergent thinking. And divergent thinking is when you are looking for ideas stretching your brain, you know, going to new places in your head, that's divergent thinking. And convergent thinking is when you are making choices about those ideas you came up with in the divergent phase. And what we know from both research and experience is we need to separate those two modes of thinking. We need to first consciously diverge for a while till we come up with a list of potential ideas And then we need to consciously converge, which means pick the best of them and and then hone them and make them better. And we don't tend to do that in daily life. In daily life, we tend to just mix these two things, not really realizing that's what we're doing. So what happens typically is somebody says an idea, and even if you're doing this on your own, the process is the same. There's an idea and it is immediately judged like, well, it's too expensive or we don't have time or I can't do that because, you know, I have to help my kid with their homework. So we tend to have an idea and judge it immediately. And typically we judge it negatively because of that negativity bias. So we're mixing divergent and convergent thinking. So what you want to do instead is come up first, diverge specifically and consciously for a while until you have a list of several ideas. Because the other thing we know from research is the better ideas come later in that process. The ideas that come out first are the easy, top of mind, superficial, probably thought of before ideas. And it's only when you sort of let your brain get those out of the way and dump them out that you make space in your brain for more creative and more innovative ideas. They come later in the process, and that's definitively proven from many research studies. So you need to make a long list of potential ideas in the divergent phase with no judgment. And one of the things that will help you defer your judgment, is to start each idea with the words, I might. Mm. Like, I might consider taking a two-hour walk every day. Or I might decide that I'm going to look for a new job. And somehow those words, I might, helps your, give your brain permission to not so instantly reject, which is what the, the negativity bias might do. So diverge first. Start every idea with the words I might and make sure you have a long list of potential ideas to solve whatever it is you're trying to solve for. And then once you have that in the converging phase, the most important thing to remember in converging is that you want to, because converging is when you have to judge ideas. You do now have to assess and make some decisions. But what you want to remember to do is you are judging by looking for the good, not judging by looking for the bad. So what we tend to do in most situations, if we have a list of options, our first instinct is to go through that list and mark off the bad ones. And that's the opposite of what you want to do. 
you want to go through and check mark the potentially good ones. So you're spending your energy and your attention on the potentially good ones instead of, instead of spending your energy and your attention on the bad ones, which is a very, it's a, it's instinctive for us to look for the bad because it's back to that negativity bias. So when you're converging, judge by looking for the good, not judge by looking for the bad. So that's yeah. sort of a foundational creative thinking tip. Susan, you are just an amazing resource. I mean, I'm blown away. I'm going to have to listen, besides my editing process, going to have to listen back to this about 15 times to absorb everything you said. This is amazing, amazing, invaluable information. Thank you. Thank you. I'm wondering for you, how are you working on pivoting your business? Because I know so much of it is based on in-person experiences. How are you pivoting it during this time? I've been working a lot on how to uh, present virtually and I am learning quickly. So there are definitely ways to do it. You know, how you engage people is I think very different here, but there are definitely ways to do it. And I, I have, I'm feeling pretty good about having figured that out. Now I just have to figure out how to convince other people that I can do that. So they want to buy it. Oh my it. gosh. I want to buy it. So <laughs> you've got to believe we're here. You've got all my listeners. We're ready. We're ready for the experience. And that's cool because in a way you might get to reach, I mean, you will get to reach even more people putting it out in that way. So that's exciting. Yes. I've read your bio a few times and all, there's actually a few bios I've read, and all of them state that you're an accomplished dancer, which I love. <laughs> Tell me about that. Did you ever go down that creative path? What What is dancing in your life? So it's interesting. I came to it very late in life. As a young person, I was always sort of interested in dance, and I, I took like tap dancing lessons when I was a kid, but discovered pretty quickly that I wasn't really very good at it. And I think that negativity bias had already kicked in for me. And I kind of went, well, other people are better than me. I'm just going to quit. And it was because of my, you know, kind of fear of failure and I don't want to look bad. So I, I abandoned it and did nothing with it until again, just about five years ago, I happened to be at a charity event and they had a silent auction. And one of the things that was on the auction was some free ballroom dancing lessons. And I bid on it kind of as a lark and I really didn't think I would get it. Turned out I was the only person who bid and I, I won it. And after in it, actually in the middle of my first lesson, I thought I have found a lifelong passion. It just really spoke to me. Now I'm, I'm not a competitive dancer. I'm a social dancer. I do it really for fun, not to compete, but I just love it. It brings me joy in every way, everything about it. It's exercise, it's music, it's social. You're talking to other people. You're in many ways, ballroom dancing, when you're not doing a, a performance routine, which I don't, Social dancing is an improvisation at every step because a leader leads something and a follower has to, you know, follow it and figure it out. And together you are creating a dance in an improv in an improvisational way in every moment. And part of that speaks to me too. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's just so good for our brains to learn things as adults. I call it, I'm sure there's actually science behind this, but I call it the art of being bad at something. You know, like we grow up and we're so highly skilled at the things that we know how to do that when we do something for the first time, it feels like we're walking again for the first time and we're right. going to fall over, but we're not used to that feeling of falling over. Right. And so doing that as an adult, I think is so important and it does enhance the other work you're doing. Absolutely, it does. And there's a lot of research that proves learning as an adult is one of those things that staves off dementia and Alzheimer's. So continuing to learn is really important. Do you incorporate your dance into your presentation at all? I haven't yet. I'm kicking around that idea. I would love that. I really think you should. <laughs> yeah. Other people have said the same. I think I, there's a little fear for me that I have to get around in that too. Yeah. Maybe during the lockdown, you can experiment, you know, like maybe even if it's just how you enter or exit the stage, but I've never seen any public speaker do that. And I think it would really wake people up and yeah. it's perfect for the content that you're presenting. Yes, you're right. Yes. Would you say that you're living your dreams right now? Yes, absolutely. Oh, <laughs> I love that. Thank you. Are there any dreams you haven't delved into yet that you think you will down the road? Well, you know, I, I have a uh, an ongoing dream of traveling to as many places as I possibly can in the world. And I've done a lot of that and hope to continue to do it. I had a, actually a great uncle 
he was in, there's a club for people who have visited more than a hundred countries. And, and my uncle was in that club. He visited, I think before he died, something like 140 countries. Wow. And when he was 92, he took a trip to circumnavigate the globe. Um, and oh my I, have gosh. A, I have a dream to do something kind of like that. Maybe not that exact thing, but I'm, I, I'm, I work, I, I, ch- I chisel away at that dream a little bit every year. Okay. You're going to get there. <laughs> One of the other goals of the podcast is to help people really claim their own voice and their right to be who they are and take up space. So I'm wondering if you look back on your memories and, and the wonderful, amazing life that you've lived so far, is there a time in your life where you felt most like yourself and how do you work toward creating more of those moments? That's an interesting question. When have I felt most like myself? You know, I actually think I feel most like myself when I'm dancing. And that's probably why I love it so much. Because it is, it's creative, it's musical, it's joyful. It is, it allows you to express yourself. And for me, I don't, I don't think about are other people watching me and what are they thinking? I'm just thinking about, man, this is fun. And I'm, I'm expressing and I'm moving and I'm exercising. So I think it is find something you love to do and do it fully. Love that. And this is my final question. I believe creativity is deeply connected to the inner child. And thankfully, through your research, you confirmed it for me. So that five-year-old self that would have been scoring as highly creative, I think it's connected to that little person. And I'm wondering if you and your five-year-old self were standing in the same room and looking at each other, what do you think she would say to you and why? Uh, I think she would say... You lost me for a while, but you found me back and thank you. And what would you say to her and why? I would say thank you for planting the seed. (laughs) Oh, that makes me cry. Thank you so much, Susan. This was just an incredible interview. One of my favorites that I've ever had the privilege of doing. And I really appreciate you sharing your knowledge and your story and your soul. Thank you. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. Thank you for listening and to my guest, Susan Robertson. For more information on her and her work, check out her website, susanrobertson.co. And thank you. Remember to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Follow the show on Spotify, tell a friend about the show, and get a tattoo of the logo on your arm. Just kidding. But if you did want to do that, I'd fully support you. And you can also follow me at Lauren LaGrasso and follow the show at Unleash Your Inner Creative. Download my music on all the music streaming platforms and just be my friend. My wish for you this week is that you work toward overcoming the status quo and negativity biases that are currently holding you back from your dreams. That's what I'm working on. Also, not 100% sure to this moment whether it's biases or biases. There's controversy over it on the internet, so if you know, feel free to tweet me because... I'd like to sound smart if I could. (laughs) Anyway, you know I love you. And remember, I believe in you.